Dr. Martin Luther King once said, of all the forms of injustice and inequality in healthcare, is the most shocking and most inhumane. So I'm privileged to listen and introduce to, to you Dr. Austin O'Carroll, a man who needs no introduction, and a man who would define, defy any introduction. And I'll ask Dr. Austin to speak on the art of ignoring the obvious. Thank you. Um, thank you very much to the ICGP for, honor, for the honour of speaking to you, and also to Orla Sherlock, who I, I call Orla 007, who is cool, calm, no matter what you throw at her. So thanks, Orla. Appreciate it. Uh, I knew Dr. Gertrude Ronan, um, a, a wonderful doctor. Uh, I sort of uh, liken her to sailing on an autumn's day, because when you sail on an autumn's day, often you get fantastic sunshine, and you can see for miles really clearly. And Gertrude was someone who could see where she was going and was clear where she was going. She was also someone who was absolutely certain on what everything should be ship-shape, and if it wasn't, people would soon hear about it. Um, and I've also experienced going through a Gertie squall. <laughs> uh, 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 and it's uh, like all autumn squalls, it starts quickly, builds to a fury, and dissipates very quickly. And I survived that squall. But I suppose my favourite thing about an autumn's day sailing is it's great fun. And that's really what defined Gertie for me too. Despite everything, the professionalism, she was just great fun. So as a result of this, in this lecture, in her honour, I hope to be honest, forthright, challenging, and professional. So... Starting off being professional, I'm starting with an apology. Uh, Kieran Harkin tells me I'm very good on apologies. Uh, my first apology is that um, I uh, have a lot to say and I speak fast, so unfortunately you'll have to listen fast. Um, my second apology is that I gave a title to the ICGP because they asked for one. And, uh, but as I started to write the speech, it changed. So I'm not speaking to anything close to the title at all. But... Uh, <laughs> In the words of the immortal song, it's my party, and you can cry if you want to. <laughs> um, so I want to start off with two very short stories. Uh, it's, the first story came from the start of my career when I was an intern. And uh, when I was an intern, uh, I remember getting the phone call still. And basically, uh, it was saying that a patient I had been attending the previous week had been admitted with a pulmonary embolus into, the, into casualty. And I read back my notes and included the following phrases, fever, bilateral calf pain, no swelling, cough and pain on inspiration, diagnosis, viral URTI. I had written the diagnosis of PE into the notes and then misdiagnosed them and discharged them. I still remember the, the waking up at five o'clock in the morning, the pain in the chest, the fear, the guilt, the anger at the whole situation. Um, I wanted to apologize. I went to my consultant and registrar they noted what I said and said, say nothing, and um, not, I heard nothing ever after it. We never went over the incident. We never looked at the surrounding context, how we had been under pressure to get the bed free, and I'd been told to make sure to get the person free out of the bed, and how I, we had discussed the possibility of PE, but then decided not. And so it disappeared into the ether, and I basically had to live with the guilt until it faded away. The second story comes from 8 o'clock this morning. I was getting prepared for this speech, which is a big honor. I had prepared everything last night. I was in a Zen-like state of meditation being calm and calmness. I just forgot I had a teenager in my house <laughs> who needed to go to GAA. 
And so the next 20 minutes was, oh, I forgot to get up. Forgot my, where's my pants? Dad, will you go down to the washing and see if my pants in there? My shoes are falling apart. What will I do? I want to talk about blame. Um, and I'm going to start by defining the features of blame. Guilt. Guilt is where one has a strong negative emotional reaction to the perception that one has acted wrongly. This wrongful action may be moral or ethical in, in nature, for example, feeling guilty for stealing something, or it can be social, feeling guilty for acting or not acting in a way that results in another person to feel let down. Shame. Shame is a feeling associated with the perception that others think badly of one. In many cases, these others are external people, for example, family, friends, colleagues, or in the case of public shame, the wider community. On occasions, shame can relate to an imaginary audience. You imagine what would people think of you if they knew what you'd done. Unlike guilt, there's not necessarily a moral stimulus for shame. For example, teenagers often feel guilty or shame if they don't have the right clothes to wear with their peers. Responsibility can be understood as a bundle of obligations associated with a job or a function. Accountability is where harm has occurred due to an action and a person is identified who was responsible for the action and thus is responsible for the harm that occurred. Unaccountable people use excuses, shifting of blame, acting confused or helpless to avoid responsibility. Blame. Blame is where we hold a person accountable for what is judged to be a moral or ethically wrong action or inaction. Usually when we blame someone, harm has recurred. With blame, we are saying there is something bad about that person. The very word blame is soaked with feeling. The range of emotions involved in blame and identified in the literature include hate, anger and resentment, but it can also extend to other attitudes including disapproval, dislike, disappointment, indignation, contempt. As a result of these emotions, blame can manifest in berating, attacking, humiliating, writing off, rejecting, shunning, abandoning and criticising. It is the emotion and the resulting behaviours that produce what Pickard describes as the sting of blame, and that's what makes it so difficult to live with. Why do we blame people? Well, the question depends on how closely you are associated to the harm. If one directly suffers or one's loved one suffers, then blame is a way of managing the anger and coping with the anger and, and sadness that one feels. For those less connected, for example, read in the newspaper about a distant medical error, the attribution of blame is less emotional. In these instances, we can think of the psychological theory of, of object relations, or splitting, where we often define or defend ourselves psychologically by splitting the world into opposites, for example, good or bad, virtuous and degenerate. Such splitting allows us to have a clear sense of our place in the world. We are the good, they are the, <coughs> they are the bad. Blaming others enables one to retain one's sense of being good or virtuous person. Essentially, one joins the smug ranks of the moral majority. Based on these definitions, I'm going to make a few assertions. My first assertion, 
The vast majority of health professionals should not be blamed for the mistakes they make. In 2014-15, the NHS dealt with 1 million people every 36 hours, 16 million people were admitted to hospital, almost 10 million people had operations, 22 million people attended ED. Serious incidents were reported in 0.5% of the activity, and medical negligence claims were made in 0.5%. 150,000 doctors, 377,000 nurses, 156,000 associated staff. There are at least 43 million adverse events annually worldwide. It has been estimated one in 10 hospital patients experienced an adverse event, of which just over 7% are lethal. In the US, it has been reported that 400,000 patients die per year due to medical errors. In the NH, almost 900,000 incidents and near misses are reported annually, of these 2,000 resulting in loss of life. Human error can never be eradicated. Radhakrishna says, in complex systems, there is always error. It is embedded in the system like grains in a loaf of bread. It is impossible to create a completely error-free system. Clinicians need to be thought of the inevitability of mistakes and how to handle them. To err is human. The question is, should we seek to attribute blame to those health professionals responsible for medical error? Some doctors deserve blame. Howard Shipman acted immorally and deserves our opprobrium. However, the evidence is clear that the vast majority of errors in medicine are not due to moral irresponsibility and thus are not worthy of blame. The consequences of the errors can be devastating for patients, but that does not imply the intention of the responsible person was immoral. As Elliot noted, all of those people went to work each day with the aim of helping people and not intending to do harm. The second victims are healthcare providers who are involved in medical error and become traumatized by the event. Frequently, these individuals feel personally responsible for the patient outcomes. Many feel as though they have failed the patient second-guessing their clinical skills and knowledge base. The culture of blame is only reflective of a wider blame culture inherent in our society. Every day we see the media search for who is to blame for the disaster of the day. There is also a blame culture in medicine. We have all seen and experienced the institutionalized bullying that is seen as a rite of passage. And that is a, 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 a medium that young doctors learn that we have to take blame and give blame. So why do we operate a system of blame in medicine? Radhakrishna describes the medical paradigm whereby doctors are supposed to practice to perfection and failure to do this results in blame. Mistakes are moral ethical failings and deserve punishment. In addition, the perpetrator is expected to own up to the mistake despite knowing that they will face public shame. This is what I call the medicine. We expect people to own up to mistakes and face public humiliation. Are we for real? Radhakrishna gave the example of Julie Thao, a nurse who was found guilty of manslaughter for attaching an epidural bag IV to a 16-year-old pregnant woman. She had worked 16-hour shifts the previous night and had 19 years of blemish-free employment prior to the incident. The case of Dr. Bawa Gower over in England is very similar. She was caring for a child who she failed to diagnose was actually suffering from sepsis. 
She had returned from 13 months uh, maternity leave. She was covering a doctor who, she volunteered to cover a doctor who was working at the CAU. She was new to the position. She had worked a 16-hour shift. She made a mistake. The child died. She was struck off the medical council and sent for criminal prosecution for manslaughter. She was given a two-year suspended sentence. This is humiliation. Howard Shipman deserved condemnation, blame and humiliation. Julie Thao and Dr. Bawa Gower did not deserve that. On top of the medical paradigm, we have the legal paradigm. It doesn't accept error as a normal human occurrence in complex systems. And when it occurs, the person making the mistake has to be identified and has to pay and has to be shown to blame. These two paradigms combine to create a blame culture whereby practitioners live in fear of making mistakes, being blamed and shamed. My second assertion, blaming health professionals fails to serve the best interest of both health professionals and patients. Sadly, there is ample evidence that patients ultimately lose out as a result of a blame culture. Firstly, a system that encourages blame also encourages its operatives to seek to avoid blame by suppressing information, denying errors, and seeking to obfuscate the cause of the error. Frank discussion and analysis of mistakes to prevent future ones is prevented. 93% of doctors say they would disclose an error to a patient, but less than 5% of errors are reported due to fe physician fears of being blamed. Secondly, the emo emotional impact on doctors of um, providing appropriate treatment for their patients. 12% of surgeons report a decline in performance levels due to having made a mistake. 2% avoid the procedure that resulted in error. Distrust is fostered and defensive medicine encouraged. The result is a plethora of unnecessary tests, time wasted writing up unnecessary notes. We all know we end up spending less time with patients. Marshall Marinker suggested the task of the GP was to tolerate uncertainty, explore probability and marginalise danger. How can one tolerate uncertainty and only deal with probability if there is a patient waiting to blame you for not foreseeing a rare and exceptional possibility? What is the alternative? Sorry, apologies. That's, yeah. What is the alternative? Could we operate a blame-free culture where only mistakes that result from patently immoral action or inaction resulting in harm are censured? Systems that want to encourage the reporting and analysis of mistakes, such as in the air aviation industry, who adopted a non-blame approach to mistakes and set up a safety reporting system for staff to self-report incidents. Radhakrishna describes this paradigm as the systems paradigm, which recognises mistakes are often the result of a series of system failures, rather like James Reason's Swiss cheese model, where the holes all align. The system paradigm does not allocate blame. It reports error and analyses them. It admits mistakes to patients and, and pays compensation where merited. When Elaine Bromley died as a result of an anaesthetic accident, her husband, Martin Bromley, asked the medical profession to analyse the reasons for her death. No charges were brought. The focus was on improving services. Such an approach is, a, is the only one that will enable us to retain staff in a time when retention is so important. As well as encouraging the reporting of errors, blame-free cultures promote the offering of sincere apologies and, when merited, appropriate compensation. Doctors want, to, doctors want to apologize, as they do feel genuine regret and guilt, but fail to do so for the fear of litigation. 
The irony is the evidence that apologies decrease the risk of a lawsuit and help reduce the amount of eventual settlements. Most patients who resort to litigation do so to find out what happened and ensure nothing similar happens in the future. The Lexington Veterans Affairs Medical Centre adopted such a policy. While it was in the top 20% of hospitals in terms of number of payments made out, they were in the bottom 25% in terms of the total amounts paid out. The University of Michigan Health System adopted a deny and defend approach in the early 2000s and adopted three principles. Abandoned a deny and defend approach. Firstly, patients who suffered due to medical errors should be compensated quickly and equitably. Secondly, if the care offered was reasonable, the caregivers should be fully supported. And lastly, the institution needed to learn from what happened. A review of claims found the rate decreased from 38.7 to 17 per annum and median time to resolution dropped from 1.36 to 0.95 years, and the average lawsuit dropped from 405,000 to 228,000. In the US, it's been found most of the 100 billion spent in legal cases goes to lawyers. As for health professionals, the emotional impacts to making a mistake include frustration, embarrassment, anger, blame, reputational anxiety, and reduced job satisfaction. The reactions have been likened to post-traumatic stress disorder. These contribute to depression and burnout and a not uncommon consequence is suicide. I know two doctors who committed suicide while under investigation. In the UK between 1991 and 1993, of 38 doctors, suicides, seven were facing complaints and in five cases they were the key factor leading to suicide. Between 2005 and 2013, the GMC reported 28 cases where doctors under investigation committed suicide. Referral to, the, to a medical council or a legal case is a possibly fatal occurrence. There are alternative systems for managing errors. Note-fault systems um, in New Zealand, the Nordic countries, and in limited ways in some US states. It's necessary to prove causation, but not necessary to pr prove negligence. Alternate dispute resolutions aim to resolve compensation claims outside the courtroom. These have been very successful in Pittsburgh and Drexel, where cases, um, where it's in managing successful outcomes in 85 to 88 percent of cases with significant savings in the millions. And health courts, which are specialized tribunals for addressing medical malpractice, manned by special judges, trained judges rather than juries. In conclusion, the holding to moral account of health professionals who are seeking to improve the health and lives of their patients they treat for mistakes which are a normal and recurrent feature of human activity, is not only abhorrent, it also serves those health professionals, their patients and society badly. We need to reserve blame for those professionals who deserve it. My third assertion, doctors blame patients resulting in poor delivery of healthcare to those patient groups who have the worst health indices in the Western world. We as doctors know what it is like to feel blamed. We know the anxiety, the fear, and the overwhelming shame and humiliation. So why do we blame patients? And there's an increasing moralization of medicine towards certain behaviors that the public health has defined as unhealthy. Cigarette smoking, eating high-fat diet, being obese, entering Zika-infected countries if pregnant, or possibly pregnant, or failing to obtain a vaccination. This moralization intensifies when we encounter those deviant behaviors that cause certain groups to be marginalized, for example, homeless people, drug users, alcoholics, travelers, aggressive and criminal patients. And sadly, these are the very groups that have the worst health indices in the Western world, with life expectancies decades less than that of the white, middle and upper classes, and horrifying physical and mental health burdens.
When we blame patients for their behaviours, we are creating stigma and prejudice. Stigma is a mark of social disgrace that results in condemnation and ostracization by society, resulting in the marked person experiencing shame and isolation. It has significant impact on both self-identity and self-esteem. It results in the general public and medical professionals distancing themselves from the stigmatized person and discriminating unjustly against them. And there's a wealth of evidence that medical professionals stigmatize and discriminate against these groups. Reports of medical discrimination against homeless people abound. Uh, I got treated like that the first time over, and there's no way I'm going to get treated like that. I'd rather sit here and fucking die on the bench than go over to the surgery. So, sadly, surgery shows medical students have their enthusiasm for working with homeless people transformed to negative, cynical, uncaring attitudes over their training, resulting from the negative role modeling of their educators. In my ethnographic research on homelessness in 2015, there were over 222 references to stigma from health professionals. Martins described how homeless people said stigma permeated their encounters with doctors. Research by Fiona Riley and I in 2005 found 45% of homeless people had no medical card, many saying they couldn't get a GP to sign them up. 25% of homeless families with children couldn't access GP care due to refusals of GPs to accept them. Accept them. In the Partnership of Health Equity in 2013, we found 28% of respondents described previous negative experiences in the health service. <clears throat> Nurses are often perceived to be more sympathetic than doctors, um, who are often depicted as aloof and poor communicators. However, the evidence shows that they demonstrate negative and dehumanizing attitudes towards people who are homeless, and this affects access to health care. Citizen Traveller found 42% of our population have a high level of intolerance and discrimination towards travellers, and this affects access to healthcare. Between 16 to 40% of travellers before to being discriminated negatively against by health professionals, who often perceive them as less deserving. Only 41% of travellers trust health professionals compared to 83% of the general population. Ethnic minorities face discrimination from health providers. Irish people's attitudes towards ethnic minorities are less positive than the European average. In UK research, we show many asylum seekers are refused registration by GP practices and regularly face discrimination from health professionals. Probably the most stigmatised of all groups is drug users. Drug addiction is stigmatised worldwide. It is a higher social disapproval than other stigmatised issues, including leprosy, HIV, homelessness, dirtiness, neglect of children, and a criminal record for burglary. The literature on drug addiction and stigma under what I call, comes under what I call the everyone knows research. Everyone knows the stigma of, of addiction is a barrier to obtaining health care. This results in maltreatment of, in health services, including offering suboptimal treatment, withdrawal of treatment, barring from services, and interpersonal distancing and rejection behaviours. Medical students have been found to harden their attitudes towards addicted patients again due to role modelling of their, of their educators. I remember this young 24-year-old woman when she attended the service Kieran and I run. She was a mother of four, a four-year-old child who travelled up from a, a town down the country and she couldn't obtain methadone treatment for her drug addiction in her local town. She became homeless on the streets of Dublin so she could access our homeless methadone service. We got her onto methadone and she did very well. 
we got a pharmacy in her local town to dispense to her once to dispense to her, and she came up to us once a week. We couldn't get a GP to actually issue the script in her local town. What we didn't know is that when she visited her once a week, she stayed in a homeless hostel. And one night she came up and was violently sexually assaulted in that homeless hostel. She was so uh, traumatized, she took to the streets and she died of an overdose three weeks later. Her four-year-old child was uh, motherless straight as a result of that. Um, that woman, woman and would be alive and that child would have a mother if the GP locally had offered methadone treatment. I've seen this, Kieran has seen this, we've all seen this working in this area in Dublin, many people coming up, becoming homeless to get treatment for their drug addiction. I think it is the biggest disgrace in general practice in today's world. And that is exclusion. There are over 3,500 GPs in Ireland. There are 1,836 trained level 1 GPs and 192 trained at level 2, yet there's only 282 practicing level 1 doctors and 83 practicing level 2. I think this is causing severe hardship and death. Patients who are aggressive or difficult in medicine are labelled as having personality disorder. There's a flood of evidence that this is a stigmatising label resulting in health professionals refusing treatment. The amount of times you ring a psychiatrist and they say, not for us, they've got personality disorder. These patients are described by health professionals as manipulative, difficult to manage, unlikely to arouse a sympathy, annoying and not deserving of resources. Suicide attempts in such patients are described as attention-seeking rather than a sign of real distress. My fourth assertion, the disease model that was developed to reduce blame is non-scientific, destructive medical construct that fails to reduce stigma and results in patient outcomes. The traditional model for understanding uh, socially disapproved behaviour is the moral one. The moral paradigm maintains addiction or aggression is a choice and thus a morally wrong choice. These are bad people of bad character. The disease model emerges an alternative to the moral model. For addiction, it proposes substance misuse as a compulsion that is outside the control of the user. It is involuntary and seen as a chronic relapsing neurobiological disease causing compulsive use of harms of substances. Mark Lewis, amongst others, including myself, reject both the choice and moral uh, models of addiction and the disease models. He rejects the moral model as promoting complex, ignoring the so psychosocial causation of addiction and the fact that it promotes stigma and rejects the disease model as it pathologizes addiction and it's not a disease. Much of the confusion of, of addiction and challenging behaviors as diseases comes from a lack of understanding of the difference between a disease and an illness. Disease implies the presence of pathology Illness implies the presence of symptoms. You can have a disease without an illness, and you can have an illness without a disease. Most GPs see this on a daily basis. Unlike physical diseases, it is not possible for a pathologist to know if the corpse they are forensically examining suffered from most psychiatric diagnoses, because there's no pathology. The history of how we created a plethora of diagnostic labels misleadingly implying the presence of disease is well charted in the must-read book Creating Mental Illness by Alan Horowitz, and I won't go into it. If I am anxious, just I suppose the, the, in terms of it, um, they do, he addresses a number of things. And just to clarify, if you have a treatment, it doesn't mean there's a disease. If I'm anxious before this, giving this speech and I take Valium, it will relax me and get rid of my anxiety, but that doesn't mean my anxiety was actually a disease. 
Frank and Nagel reject the Maryland disease models of addiction. They note a person with diabetes or cancer cannot just decide to give up the disease. And the problem about the disease model is we're actually taking away the one thing that we have that we can say to this person that enables them to get free of this addiction is that they are responsible. They're not to blame, they are responsible and they are the only ones who can come free of the addiction. And the irony is that the disease model does not reduce stigma. 70% of the public endorse the disease model but the majority don't want to give public funds for it. Hammer et al. examined the disease model um, and said that in fact they, in, the, in their research they found it actually interfered with treatment rather than helping it. And Confali and Lyle in 2013 likewise found that the disease model did not reduce stigma and actually endorsed the stereotype of such people as being dangerous and lacking control. You don't have to conceptualise as addiction as a disease for you not to blame people for it. You just don't blame. You understand they had to learn this because of their background and they come through these through the background of poverty. You just have to deal with them and, and work with them as people and pull away from the blame model. My sixth assertion is that marginalised patients do not deserve to be blamed. The next question considers, are people who display behaviours such as addiction, aggression, violence to blame for the behaviours? There's no doubt they are responsible as they have a choice to engage in these behaviours or not. But we need to look at what, explore wh whether or not there are other external explanations for why people display such failings other than an in internal moral lassitude or failing. And there are two interlinked explanations, the effects of poverty and adversity in childhood. The literature on poverty has well recognised ecologically that environment has a large influence on the development of behaviour. In adolescence, it has been found in the UK research that the impact of poverty can permeate every aspect of children's lives, material, social and emotional. Are people to blame for aggression and crime? The higher the concentration of poverty, the higher levels of aggressive crime. Children born into poverty are cursed with facing poor social, emotional and behavioural outcomes. This association, association worsens as they grow older. Youth in low-income urban areas cause significant public disorder due to aggressive, violent and disruptive behaviours. As adults, they are significantly more likely to display psychopathology, substance misuse and engage in criminal activities. Conviction rates and prison mates affect disproportionately those born into poverty. Are they to blame for substance misuse? Neighbourhood poverty often results in increased level of alcohol problems amongst its residents. It is positive increased alcohol level is their method of controlling self-medication for the stresses of living. Poverty is consistently associated internationally with excess in inequitable illicit drug misuse. In Dublin, the highest levels of opiate users come from deprived areas. The concentration and Sorry, the, the, con the concentration on drug misuse that pervades inner cities should be understood within the historical context of deindustrialization, educational disadvantage, less pro-social recreational facilities and rising unemployment. Once on drugs, people in, people in poverty makes it less likely one will recover with residents of more affluent areas having a higher chance of recovery. Are they to blame for homelessness? It's agreed almost universally that poverty is the key contributory factor to becoming homeless and that it can lead to intergenerational homelessness. Now let us look at adverse childhood experiences, which is a developing literature and a fantastic literature. Though I beware, it is not a disease, and I, I hope it never becomes one. 
There is a wealth of evidence emerging that those behaviours we so disapprove of are a result of facing adversity in childhood. And as could be expected, the risks of experiencing childhood adverse events hugely increase by being born into poverty. Adverse childhood events, ACEs, were first defined by a seminal study by the Kaiser Permanente Hospital Group as experiences in childhood of abuse and neglect are physical, so it includes physical, social abuse, physical, emotional or sexual abuse, neglect, physical or emotional, are the experiencing of parental incarceration, domestic violence, substance misuse or separation or mental illness. Exposure to any of these, one of these, results in, and as you, there's a risk, as you have exposure to more, the risk goes higher. It results in lower life expectancies, increased morbidity across a wide range of physical diseases, health risk behaviours such as smoking and sexual risk-taking, increased mental illness rates, including suicide attempts, and most relevant to this presentation, increased challenging behaviours in both children and adults, including aggression, criminal activity, domestic violence, alcohol abuse, illicit abuse, drug misuse and homelessness. There is a dose response when you come the number of ACEs increases. So does the risk of disabling chronic disease and several of the leading causes of early death. Uh, exposure to four, more, four or more ACEs can drop your life expectancy by 20 years. This association is indicative of causation. Um, children born into poverty are more likely to have adverse childhood events. Toppet says found 39% of children born into po poverty had five or more ACEs in their childhood compared to 8% of the general population. Being poor is associated with so many ACEs that it is, can be considered an adverse childhood event in itself, more pervasive and persistent than all others. The saddest thing is it is almost a universal human desire to protect one's children from the adversities that one was exposed to as a child oneself. Most sadly, the research on ACEs demonstrate this is almost impossible to achieve with intergenerational continuity of childhood abuse and neglect. Having experienced ACE as a child is unfortunately predictive of an ACE as an adult, of having your own children experience ACE. Personality disorder, 30 to 90% of those with personality disorder have a history of childhood abuse. Most people with a personality disorder come from areas of deprivation. This is the perverse injustice of personality disorder. It's caused by social inequity, and we say it's your personality, your core. If we had any decency, we would say it's social inequity disorder. And that disorder means they get poorer treatment and excluded from medical service. It's an appalling label. My final assertion is that we society are to blame for the existence of inequality. Too often we listen to radio interviews on, on Sunday where the panel discussion uh, discusses the effects of policy on the economy um, and disregard the effect of how we live our actual lives. Invariably, they always ignore the effect of policy, proposed policy changes on inequality. Wilkinson and Pickett um, examined a range of social and health problems and found they tended to be more severe in more inegalitarian countries. More unequal countries had higher homicide rates, worse juvenile homicide rates, worse violent crime rates, worse child abuse rates, worse imprisonment rates, worse educational outcomes, higher rates of racism, higher levels of gender inequality, lower social mobility, lower levels of trust, higher rates of substance misuse as well as lower life expectancy, higher infant mortality rates, higher obesity levels, higher levels of teenage births and worse physical and mental illness profiles. And they attribute all this to inequality. Navarro says it's not inequality, it's actually a political system. And they looked at two types of political system. 
the social, four types, but if I take the social democrat system, which exists in Sweden, Finland, Norway, Denmark, and Austria, and the liberal system that exists here in Ireland and uh, UK and the US. The social democratic tradition is characterized by high union membership, low unemployment, high levels of social security expenditure, high tax rates, universal social education and health cover, high expenditure on health, and high public employment and high levels of gender inequality. They have the lowest poverty levels and they have the best indices in terms of life expectancy and infant mortality rates, as well as other in health outcomes. The liberal tradition is typified by a strong capitalist class and a tradition of allowing the market right to operate freely with minimal government interference. The labor movement is weak, wages are low, income derived from capital is high, social benefits lower than other forms of welfare states, and they are only awarded on the basis of proven needs through needs assessment. After the ex-fascist states, the liberal states have the lowest expenditure per head on health, and after the ex-fascist states, we have the highest levels of inequality and the worst mortality rates, including infant mortality rates, with the US having the worst mortality rates of all nations in the Western world. We, as a society, choose our political and economic system. We individually vote for parties based on tax policies, housing and rent societies, policies, educational policies, social welfare policies, employment protection policies. When we individually vote, we make a decision to support the reduction or proliferation of inequality. When we elect, we collectively make a decision on whether we will promote inequality or inequality. We are to blame for the society we create. I'm going to skip the next thing about social trust, but just a little point is the idea that in Nordic nations, um, they have the highest level of social trust. And the highest level of social trust is um, promoted by, by equality. And I believe that when you have trust in a society, that's what fosters an attack of blame. You, you stop blaming people. You stop blaming people for the effects of poverty. You stop blaming health professionals for the mistake they made, because you don't have to. It's about trusting each other and working with each other. And I suppose I am agnostic, but I have re great regard for an early Jewish philosopher called Jesus Christ, who said, let those with bla out blame cast the first stone. I'm going to miss the last part, which is just because I want to finish with the poem I wrote. But before I finish with the poem I wrote, I'm going to put you in a difficult position as an audience. Um, I want to bring you back to that 24-year-old mother who died and that four-year-old child who's motherless. And you may think I'm deserving of applause at the end of this, and if you do, I'll accept it gratefully. But what I would prefer is, instead of spending 15 seconds applauding me, that you took 15 seconds of silence to think of that mother and to consider, not to commit, just to consider taking on a patient for methadone treatment in your practice. And I'll finish with the poem. The first time ever I saw your face, pale and white and full of grace, scored with a filigree of blue veins lace, to bring blood, to bring blood, to bring blood. Blood too used to carrying opiate haze had clotted and blocked your circulatory maze. And you, as you beseeched me for help, you held tight on my gaze. And you pled, and you gasped, and you sucked. So we lifted you high to air fresh and clean, and washed out your vessels with methadone green. And as you floated on high where angels do dream, you shun and you shun and you shun. 
Hep C, DVT, SBE, how one's body can cope. All one's need is some care and a sliver of hope. And fun flies back and lovers elope. And you grew and you grew and you grew. And when your baby was born, you shun from the core. A Madonna and child for us to adore. The victory was yours, you had even the score. All seemed good, all seemed good, all seemed right. One slip, two slips, was all that it took. The child stealers came and your golden world shook. And though I knew that they came, with shame I could not look. And you shivelled, you shrank, and you crumpled. The last time ever I saw your face, blue bruised by a lover's fisted embrace, your heroine's cheek a hollowed out space, the sun dead in your eyes, in your eyes, in your eyes. Thank you.